Appreciate Brother Tim's good message this morning on being thankful. Message of thanksgiving to remind us once again that this should uh, be something that we do regularly, daily. And really every time we come and worship, worship is a service of thanksgiving to God to honor Him. I want to look in the sixth chapter of Daniel this morning. Daniel chapter 6 is where we, of course, read of Daniel being put into a den of lions and his miraculous deliverance. And not God miraculously intervened on behalf of Daniel. He certainly would have been consumed by the lions in that den of lions. But it pleased God to deliver him. And he delivered Daniel for at least two reasons. He delivered Daniel because he still had more work for Daniel to do. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I don't know really why I'm still around. And somebody says, well, it's because God's still got something else for you to do. Or you might say, well, you know, I didn't think I'd live this long. Maybe God's got a little something else for me to do. Well, oftentimes that's the case. In this case, I know it was. As I continue reading this book of Daniel, I know there was many other things that Daniel did. God had more work for Daniel to do. But another very important reason he delivered Daniel from the dental lines is because it brought praise and glory to him. It was a display of his mighty power in doing so. Now, one of the things that a lot of people overlook when we get to the sixth chapter of Daniel is that Daniel's not the teenager we start reading about in Daniel chapter 1. When you get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is over 80 years of age. We're talking about an elderly man here in Daniel chapter 6, but still very strong in faith and strong in the Lord. Go back to Daniel 1, we'll find that Daniel was a person of great integrity, a person that loved God, had great respect for the laws of God, even as a teenage boy. And I'd like to point all the younger people here this morning uh, to the life of Daniel as a tremendous and great example that he set as a very young person when he was taken into captivity. But I also want to point out to the older people here this morning that Daniel was a great example by the time we reach chapter 6. He's, he's been an example all of his life, and we continue to be a great example. Daniel was honest. He was truthful. He was rich in integrity. He would not compromise. He would not give in, even though the odds, so to speak, were against him. When we read about Daniel in chapter 1, he's just been taken to the land of Babylon in captivity. God raised up King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonians, and he allowed him to come to Jerusalem in terms of God's judgment upon his own people. His own people had denied him. His own people wouldn't honor him. His own people turned to idols. They did not worship God in spirit and in truth. They didn't let the land lay out every seven years as they were supposed to. And for 490 years this took place. And they robbed God of 70 years uh, concerning this commandment. So God's going to put them into captivity for 70 years of the Babylonians. Now this took place uh, in several waves you might say. Nebuchadnezzar came down, his army, on three different occasions and took many of the Jews back with him to Babylon. Uh, there were a few that were left behind to till the land. 
And most of them went to Babylon. And God made the promise they'd be there for seven years. He instructed them to go, go along, you might say, with normal way of living. Uh, plant their crops. One thing or another, they were going to be there for, for a while, 70 years. But also, they would not be there for 71 years. They would not be there for seven and a half years. They'd be there for 70 years. And after 70 years, the Lord promised that he would deliver them from Babylonian captivity and bring them back. Now, Daniel was one of those that was taken in captivity along with the three Hebrew children. When we look in Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, Daniel chapter 1, we get a, a, a clearer picture of just who Daniel was and would continue to be. We find that Daniel and the Hebrew children were very exceptional. And the command of the king was that they were to set aside these exceptional individuals, even those who had been taken captive that were there in exile. And they, for three years, were to be given the best, king, the best of the king's wine and the king's meat. They would have the best food that there was, the best drink there was for three years. But Daniel knew that would be going against the dietary laws that God had given unto him. Now Daniel easily could have said, well, I don't want to eat this king's meat. I don't want to drink the king's wine. But what am I going to do? I mean, I've heard that so many times from people. You know, well, what am I going to do? I don't want to work on Sunday. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to move away where there is no old Baptist church. But what am I going to do? Well, you're going to, you can do what Daniel did. Daniel put his trust in the Lord. Daniel was not going to defile himself, the king's meat and the king's wine, if God would bless him to do so. So he approached the prince of the eunuchs, the one that was in charge of all this, and made a request. And he replied to Daniel, well, if I do this, I'll be putting my life in danger with the king because I'll be violating the king's commandment. Daniel says, well, just give us 10 days. And during this 10-day period of time, our diet will be water and the seeds of beans and peas. It's called pulse. That's all we'll have for 10 days. Then you can compare us with everybody else, all the rest of them that's been eating the king's meat and drinking the king's wine, and see for yourself. So he agreed to do that. That was still a very dangerous step for this man to take, but the Lord was working on behalf of Daniel. And that's what I want you to understand this morning, what I want to remind myself on a regular basis. you got the Lord that will work for you in his providence. you got the Lord that can touch the mind and heart of those that may be over you. you got the Lord that can bring you into favor with them. That, that expression is used repeatedly in the scriptures. We find it in the life of Joseph, how that God brought Joseph into favor with Potiphar. You know, when he was a servant of Potiphar, how he brought him into favor with the keeper of the prison when he was placed in prison. The Lord can work for you. The Lord can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. But being faithful to the Lord is what's under consideration here. That's why when the Lord said in Matthew 16, 33, excuse me, 633, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added unto you, he's given us the formula for true security. God will bless you with what you stand in need of if you seek first his kingdom. If you put him first in your life, you, you don't have to have God explain it all to you and God outline it all to you. You just trust in the Lord that the Lord's going to do that for you, you see. So Daniel and the Hebrew children were put to the test. The Bible teaches us in, uh, in Daniel chapter 1 that when that time came and the comparison was made, that the, the flesh 
uh, the countenance, the face, and everything else about Daniel and those Hebrew children was far superior to all the rest. Therefore, the prince of the eunuch allowed Daniel and the Hebrew children to continue to eat pulse and drink water. Now, how would you like that to be for your diet? <laughs> you know, just water, that wouldn't be bad for you, of course, but the seeds of peas and beans was going to be their diet. They were not going to defile themselves, and Daniel took a stand. As a young teenage boy, Daniel took a stand for what he believed in. He took a stand for his God. He wasn't at home. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He, he was away from family. He was in captivity several hundred miles away. He could easily have said, well, that's not what I want to do, but what, what choice do I have? Well, Daniel showed us what choice he had and what choice that he made. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel's not that teenage boy anymore. Daniel is in his 80s. But Daniel hadn't changed. He's still the same Daniel he was in Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to find in Daniel chapter 6 where the Babylonians are no longer in charge. The king, you look back in the last part of chapter 5, you'll find the, that king at that time. See, Daniel uh, serves, you might say, under several different kings. King of the Babylonians, but also the Medes and the Persians. And Belshazzar, who was the grandson of um, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's been struck dead. You find his death at the end of chapter 5. The Lord just struck him dead. And so now we have Darius, the Medes, he's the ruler now. A transition takes place. And he reorganizes, you might say, the land and reorganizes the government. And here's what he's got. He divides the land now into 120 provinces. And he puts three men in charge over that 120 provinces. Now there's 120 rulers over the provinces, but there's three over all of them. And of those three, Daniel is number one. In other words, he's in charge of everyone. Now, as in all cases, you're always going to have some corruption going on. And they had been used to skimming off the top, you might say, and taking that which didn't belong to them. And it was hard for a king like him to keep up with all of that, so he had to put people in charge that he really trusted, and he really trusted Daniel to be in charge of all of this. He knew the history of Daniel. Daniel's reputation came with him. The Bible tells us the first part here, Daniel chapter 6, that he had an excellent spirit. That word excellent means it was exceptional, it was outstanding. He was an exceptional person. He was an outstanding person. So he puts him in charge. He's in his 80s. He puts him in charge. He's a, a Jewish person who's in exile there. He puts him in charge. Those other two and the 120 rulers of those provinces don't like that. Now they don't like it, I think, for at least two reasons. Number one, the person who's in charge of all of them is not one of them. He's a Jew. And a Jew that's been there for a long time now, a Jew that came there as a teenage boy, he's in his 80s, he's older than most every one of them, no doubt. He's not one of them. He, he, he's Jew, a Jew again, uh, that, you know, is in exile there. And uh, he's in the authority, he's, he's over all of them, and they don't really want him to be telling them what to do. But also, they knew that Daniel would not allow any of that skimming off the top. Daniel would keep a strict account of the books, 
and be sure everything was done correctly, everything was done justly, all T's were crossed, all I's were dotted, and they didn't want somebody in charge like that. So, they come up with a plan. Let's read about it here in verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. They knew they could not coerce Daniel. They knew they could not persuade Daniel. They knew they could not uh, do anything to Daniel to make Daniel like one of them. They were not going to be able to get Daniel to do anything illegal, so they had to make what Daniel was doing concerning the law of his God illegal concerning the laws of the Medes and the Persians. They, they've searched him out. They, they've checked it out. They cannot find one single solitary thing wrong with Daniel when it comes to the law of the land there. So they thought, well, we'll, do it. we'll go another way. We'll just see if we can't find something that we can charge him with concerning the law of his God because we know he won't compromise. We know if we can get the king to pass a law that's contrary to the law of his God, he won't compromise, and then we'll have him. Pretty good plan. So they all show up, all 122. There's 123. There's one that doesn't show up, and that's Daniel. They don't tell Daniel anything about it. But see, one thing they don't know, and a lot of people don't know, it happened known down through the years. In Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram from the land of the earth of the Chaldees to go to the land he was going to show him, he said, Through thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. And that took place, it's taken place down through history. When there are those who are outside the Jewish people would bless them, God would bless them. But if they cursed them, they made God an enemy. And they're about to make God an enemy here. Because God's going to curse those that curse him and curse his people, curse the seed of Abraham. So they show up to the king. Then these three presidents, or these presidents, excuse me, and princes assemble themselves together to the king and says, King Darius, live forever. They always are telling the king to live forever for some reason. I guess it made the king feel good that people really wanted him to live forever. Of course, that wasn't going to happen. Now, the presidents and the, king, uh, the kingdom, the governors, the princes, the counselors, the captains have consulted together. They're making this look like a united front, a united effort to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. In other words, they're saying, we're going to make you God for 30 days. O king, we're going to make you God for 30 days. And if anybody should make a petition of any other God other than you, see, they're making him a God, then he should be cast into the den of blind. They're appealing to his pride. They're flattering him. And this king, like everybody else, he's got something called pride that gets in the way of him once in a while. He kind of likes everything they're saying. For 30 days, everybody's going to... Make their request to me. Everybody's going to bow to me for 30 days. And so the king grants the request. Now, if you will study the book of Esther, you'll find some parallels here. Remember, there's a man by the name of Haman that came to the king in that day and persuaded him to, you know, to sign a decree that all the Jewish people in that day could be killed on a certain day because he persuaded this king they were all his enemies. And the king, in his haste, signed the decree. 
the king here in his haste is going to sign this decree. And the one thing about the, uh, the decree of the, uh, concerning the law of the Medes and the Persians was it could not be disannulled, it could not be altered, it could not be changed, it could not be broken. So once it was signed, it was signed. So the king signs it. Now, king established the decree and signed the writing, be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, king Darius signed the writing and the decree. It's signed, it's done. For 30 days, he's going to be God. All right, what does Daniel do here? Notice how verse 10 starts out. And when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, Daniel knew it. He understood this writing was signed. He understood the penalty. He understood the consequences. He understood if he was found guilty of making a request to any other God other than the king himself, then he would be cast into a den of lions. When Daniel knew the writing was signed, what did he do? He went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he did aforetime. This is what Daniel was accustomed to doing. This is what Daniel did on a regular basis. He didn't change anything. He didn't compromise one bit. You know, he could have closed the windows where they couldn't have seen him, still prayed. He didn't do that. He could have got under his bed and prayed, I suppose, but he didn't do that. He didn't change one thing because changing just one thing would indicate to everybody else that he was a compromise, and he's not going to do that. He knows the writing's been signed. He knows what the consequences are. He knows what the penalty will be. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't change. He's still the same Daniel in his 80s as he was as a teenage boy. He's just depending upon the Lord. Let's notice something about this prayer of Daniel that I think is very important for us today. It says he kneeled upon his knees three times a day. Psalms 55 Verse 17, David says, I pray in the evening, I pray in the morning, I pray at noon. That's three times. Now I have said in recent times that you ought to pray at least five times a day. You got the morning for your breakfast, you got the noon for your dinner, you got the evening for your supper. Then you got that space between morning and noon, that space between noon and evening, right? Okay, so in those periods of time, you can pray there too, especially what I call those, again, emergency prayers. Those ones that's real short. You know, we say, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Uh, Lord, keep me. Uh, you're getting right to the point with these emergency prayers, you see. So he prays three times a day. David said he prayed three times a day. And we notice the formula. It says he prayed with supplication and thanksgiving. Supplication is a word that's associated with prayer. It means when you make a specific request... And it's a formula that we're, we find over here in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 6, in the New Testament day. We find where Paul says, be careful for nothing. The word careful means anxious. It means worry. He says, don't worry about anything. And somebody says, well, how, how can you live without worrying? Well, I've told you before, I, I taught my worry list many years ago. I started a concern list. And there's a difference between a concern list and a worry list. I don't know how anybody can live in this life without having some concerns. But worry, we shouldn't worry. He says, be careful. The word careful there, that's what it means. 
That's what the Lord told Mary, or excuse me, Martha. When Martha was busy about serving, he says, all right, careful, Martha, about many things. You're just worried about a lot of things. And like this man, he persuaded this woman one time that she didn't have anything to worry about, and she got to feeling a whole lot better, said, well, yeah, I guess I really don't have anything to worry about, and that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> I'm worried about I don't have anything to worry about. So people are going to find a way to worry, no matter what you tell them. But he says, be not careful for anything, but in everything, with supplication and prayers of thanksgiving, that your request be made known to God. And it says, he shall keep your minds and hearts, give you peace and keep your minds and hearts through Christ Jesus. You're going to find where Daniel's heart and mind is going to be kept by God. He's going to have peace because he's doing exactly what Paul tells us to do over here when he writes to the Philippians. And when he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he tells Timothy, he says, first of all, make supplications and prayers and intercessions. Now, intercession is when you're praying on behalf of somebody else. You're interceding on behalf of someone else. Supplications, when you're making specific requests in your prayers, your prayers should always include that. And your prayers should always be clothed with thanksgiving. He says, your minds and your hearts might be kept, that you might have peace. The peace of God that passeth all understanding. This is the way to do it. You pray often. You pray frequently. You pray these three times a day. They did here. And you always make sure in your prayer there's, that you have supplication, you have intercession, and you have thanksgiving. Every prayer should have an expression of thanksgiving in it in some manner, in some way. So this is what Daniel is doing. Daniel opens up his windows toward Jerusalem. Now, why did he do that? Well, you go back and you read 1 Kings chapter 8. And you'll find when Solomon had built the temple and is, dedicated, is in the process of dedicating the temple, you're going to find Solomon spreads his hands toward heaven. When you read that in the Old Testament, they spread their hands toward heaven. The banks are saying, I'm putting everything in your hand, Lord. I'm putting everything into your hands. A spread hand can't hold anything, can it? Can you hold something with a spread hand? And God's people, a lot of them are going around like this, holding all kinds of things they need to release and let go and spread their hands toward heaven and put in the hands of God. So they spread their hands toward God. That's what Solomon did. And then seven times in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon makes this request. Say, O thou, hear thou in heaven, O Lord. He acknowledges where God is. God is in heaven and asking God to hear thou in heaven. And then he gives seven different uh, uh, sets of circumstances that can occur here on this earth. And when they occur, he says, and O Lord, hear thou in heaven. Seven times he asked that. But the first request he makes is on behalf of a servant, which Daniel is, on behalf of a servant. That God would hear the prayer and the request and the cry of his servant and grant that request. That's the first of the seven that you find. Daniel's following suit right here. All right, he's going to pray toward Jerusalem. All right, why Jerusalem was again? Well, Jerusalem was the holy city. Jerusalem was the appointed city. Jerusalem was the chosen city. And in Jerusalem, you got the temple that was built, the place of worship. Psalms 5-7, David says, I will worship toward thy holy temple. There were many times that David worshipped God and he was nowhere near Jerusalem. But he knew where Jerusalem was at. 
You look at the experience of Jonah. When Jonah was thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish that God prepared that Jesus says was a whale, that fish, that whale takes Jonah in his mouth, in his belly, and takes him to the very depths of the sea. So read Jonah chapter 2. It's four chapters, read chapter 2. And you'll read of a prayer that Jonah prays in the belly of a whale in the depths of the sea. That's kind of an unusual place to pray, isn't it? <laughs> I think Jonah's got that one all to himself. I don't think there's anybody else who's ever say, well, I relate to Jonah. I was in the belly of a whale one time, and I went way down, and I just prayed. I don't think anybody can relate to Jonah in that regard. You know what it says when he's praying? He says, Lord, I will worship and pray unto thee toward Jerusalem. Now, how is a man in a whale well in the depths of the sea know which direction Jerusalem is? But that's what Jonah said. So three times a day, we're going to find where Daniel opens up his windows and he prays three times a day where everybody can hear him, everybody can see him. He doesn't change anything. He doesn't compromise one thing. He's just putting his dependence in the Lord. And he's praying toward Jerusalem. This knows the posture of Daniel in this prayer. It says that Daniel kneeled on his knees. You can go to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 1 Kings chapter 8 again, in the dedication of the temple that Solomon built. And you find when he, again, he, here was a scaffold built. He got on that scaffold. And it says on that scaffold, he knelt before all the people. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a leader in our country that would do something like that? That if our president or some of our leaders would literally kneel before God, encourage the American people to pray to the true and living God, uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I don't think. It could. God, God could arrange it. But, but that's what Solomon did. The wisest man to ever live, the, the most wealthy man to ever live, uh, a man who God used to write Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, the book of Proverbs, is on that scaffold. And he kneels on that scaffold and spreads his hands toward heaven, toward God Almighty. And he prays on his knees. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 14. And he says, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul, the great apostle said, I bow my knees. In the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, you got another apostle by the name of Peter. And here's where Peter is going to raise Tabitha from the dead. Dorcas, she'd, she'd died. And they call for Peter, and Peter comes. And the Bible says that Peter knelt and prayed. And he took him by the hand and said, Tabitha, arise. And Tabitha opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she arose. Where's Peter at? He's on his knees. When Stephen is being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, and the stones are coming and they're pelting him, and the life is going out of his body, the very last scene we have of Stephen, what is it? The Bible says, and he knelt on his knees, and he prayed to God that he would not lay this sin to their charge, but they know what they do. That's a, that's a great posture. But, but being on your knees means nothing if your heart is on its knees as well. 
That's why the Lord said in Matthew 15, 4 and 5, He says, You draw nigh to me with your lips and honor me with your tongue, but your heart is far from me. When those uh, Israelites would make, make those offerings, those sacrifices, slay those lambs, the Lord knew exactly what was in their hearts. They many times just went through the motion, just keeping the law outwardly, going through the motion. You don't fool God. I'd rather hear a man pray standing with his heart kneeling than hear a man pray kneeling with his heart standing. Because God knows the condition of a man's heart, you see. Solomon knelt. David knelt. Let's look at Psalms 95 where Tim made reference to this morning. Verse 6, he says, Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He says, the Lord is our maker. Let us kneel before him. Let us worship and bow down. That's the posture, the outward posture. that should reflect the inward posture when we pray to God. So you see the posture here of Daniel. He's kneeling. The direction that he is praying, he's praying toward Jerusalem, the chosen city of God, God's appointed city. God chose the city. That's where the temple was, the place of divine worship. That's where he's praying to. It's where Jonah prayed to. It's where David said he prayed to. Now they're not praying to the temple. They're praying toward the temple. They're praying to the God of the temple, you see. So we see his posture. We see the direction he's praying. We see the contents of his prayer. Now, when you read chapter 7 and chapter 8, you're going to find where the book of Daniel is not written in chronological order. It's going to take you back to to some of the years of the past of Daniel. But let's go to Daniel chapter 9 just for a moment. Look at Daniel chapter 9. Now this is the same time frame we're looking at in Daniel chapter 6. The first year of Darius, the son of Ahuruz, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he was accomplished 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. That tells me he's got a copy of the book of Jeremiah. But he says books, that's plural. I think he probably had the book of 2 Chronicles, because in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, you're going to find where the writer here is going to refer to the same thing that's going on in the life of Jeremiah and the life of Daniel at this particular time. He's got access to the books. He's going to pray in accordance to that because he understands the will of God in this. Notice verse 3. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This man's in sackcloth. This man's in ashes. He's praying. He's fasting. He's praying in a supplication in his prayer. There's thanksgiving in his prayer. Can you see him? Can you visualize him this morning? Can you see him as he prays those three times a day? With his windows open toward Jerusalem, he's on his knees, he's in sackcloth, he's fasting, he's praying, he's uh, issuing out supplications, and he's praying with thanksgiving. So we see, see this picture of him. Here's a man who lived close to the Lord. Here's a man in captivity who lived close to the Lord. Here's a man who understood something about the will of the Lord. Because you know what he was going to read about in Jeremiah? Uh, he's going to read a lot of things, of course, in Jeremiah. But one of the things he's going to read about in Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter, he's going to read where the Lord said, is there anything too hard for the Lord? He's going to read that. You don't think that was helpful? 
in his situation, his condition, that the Lord asked the question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord has promised they're going to be in Babylonian captivity seven years. After seven years, they're, going, they're coming out of there. Is anything too hard for the Lord? When it was year 40, year 50, year 60, year 65, did it look like they were about ready to leave Babylon? I say not. Year 66, 7, 8, and 9, did it look like they were about ready to leave Babylon? I'd say not. But after year number 70, you know what's going to happen? They're leaving Babylon. Jeremiah's read, read about it. I mean, wrote about it. Daniel's read about it. And Daniel is depending on it and believing it. And Daniel read, is there anything too hard for the Lord? You know, that was mentioned back in Genesis 14 by Abraham. Abraham asked the question, would not the judge of all the earth do right? You know, and we find where God tells Abraham, is there anything too hard for the Lord, Abraham? Jeremiah says the same thing many, many, many years later down the road. Daniel's got access to that book. Daniel's reading that book. That's why having biblical knowledge is extremely important. If you don't have biblical knowledge, you, then you don't have the knowledge of many of God's promises. If you don't have knowledge of God's promises, you're not going to make a claim to those promises when you pray. I believe Daniel is making a claim to that promise that in just a very few short years, see, it's very close to that 70 years at this point, that God's going to keep his word, God's going to keep his promises, God's going to bring them out of Babylonian captivity and bring them back down to Jerusalem. So we see this in his prayer. Well, sure enough, those who got the king to sign the decree, they're watching Daniel. Daniel doesn't make any secret about it. He doesn't try to hide the fact he does everything just like he's always done. And they see him, and they're excited about it. <laughs> they're happy about it. Because now they can bring the report to the king that he's violating the decree. Let's notice this. Verse 13. Then answered they and said before the king that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah. Now notice, they didn't just say Daniel. They remind the king he's not one of us. He came here as being one of the children of captivity. Regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that I signed, but making his petition three times a day. So they had to be there all day long watching him to see that he prayed in the morning, prayed in the evening, prayed at noontime, you see. He says, he's not regarding you. He's not regarding your decree. He's just blatantly disobeying it. It's what they're saying. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased, notice this, with himself. He knows he's messed up. He knows what kind of man Daniel is, how important Daniel is. And in his haste, he signed this decree, and Daniel has violated because he will not compromise the law of his God. He's displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He tried his best all day long to find some kind of loophole, to find some kind of manner, some kind of way that he could get Daniel released, and Daniel wouldn't have to suffer the consequences of the den of lions. Then the men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute with the king established may be changed. They remind the king about this. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Notice it's not a lion's den. It is a lion's den, but it's a den of lions. Just a lion's den could be empty. A den of lions is a den that's got lions in it. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, 
Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver you. <laughs> Did you see what he said? He said, Thy God, whom thou servest continually. The king observed the life of Daniel to the point that he knew that Daniel served his God continuously. He didn't serve his God when it was convenient. He didn't serve his God when nothing else better come up. I remember one time this uh, a young person told me, he says, you know, we, de we decided we're going to start going to church every Sunday unless something else comes along we want to do better. <laughs> they told me that. <laughs> they didn't make sense. So, uh, so I guess they must have found something better. But yeah, we decided we, we're going to start coming to church unless, you know, something else better comes along. Well, Daniel didn't serve God that way. Daniel served God continuously. He served God on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. He just wasn't a, uh, didn't just serve God and worship God one day a week, five days a week, six days a week. He did it seven days a week, every day that he lived. Daniel served his God continuously, and the king knew it, and the king saw it, and the king observed it. He says, the God whom you serve continuously. He could have just said, the God whom you serve, but he didn't. He says, the God whom thou servest continuously shall deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. This reminds me of something I read in the last part of Matthew 27. In the last part of Matthew chapter 27, soldiers come to, come to Pilate. And they said, his disciples said he'd be in the tomb for three days and three nights. Lest his disciples come and steal him away, let us seal the sepulcher and set a guard by it to make it sure. And Pilate says, go and make it sure as you can. I always love that expression, as you can, because that shows the limitation of man, you see. Make it as sure as you can. Well, how sure was it? It wasn't sure at all. The Lord just came right out of it, you see. So the king here is going to go through every step. He's going to make sure everything is done according to the law. It's sealed. His signet is there to establish it. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. <laughs> Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Does that remind you of the sixth chapter of Esther? Remember in Esther chapter 6, when the king couldn't sleep that night, and they brought the chronicles to him? See, what does this tell me? Here's two different kings who couldn't sleep at night, they had money, they had power, they had authority, they had human praise. Didn't bring them sleep, did it? All the things in this world that you could have, all the stuff that you could accumulate will not help you sleep. In fact, the more stuff you accumulate, probably the less sleep you're going to get. Because you're thinking about this and you're thinking about that. Here are two kings. If anybody could sleep, you'd think they could, right? They couldn't. Couldn't sleep. Daniel went his palace, as king went his palace and passed the night fasting, etc. Then the king arose very early in the morning, went in haste into the den of lions. Kind of reminds me of what happened back in chapter 3 with the Hebrew children, correct? And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God. Now the king recognizes Daniel's God's different than all the other gods. Daniel's God is the living God. 
the servant of the living God is thy God whom thou servest continued able to deliver thee from the lion. Now notice his faith seemed strong in the beginning, but now it's weak and wavering. <laughs> he said, thy God whom thou servest continue shall deliver thee. Now he's asking, was he able to deliver you? Then said Daniel and the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Daniel is fine. Daniel is well. What he's saying here is there's not even a scratch on me, O king. Just like the Hebrew children. You ever notice the Hebrew children are, are delivered out of the fiery furnace? There was not the smell of smoke on the clothes, not a hair of their head was singed. There was no evidence whatsoever that the Hebrew children had ever been in a fire or a furnace heated seven times hotter than normal. There was absolutely no evidence of it. You know, you, when you're in an enclosed situation, and there's a lot of smoke going on. When you walk out, smoke's all in your clothes. I, I can remember growing up, we used to burn our trash in a big old barrel in the backyard. We didn't have to get a permit. <laughs> and we'd throw it in there and throw it in there. And in my haste, sometimes I'd get a little closer than I ought to. And next thing you know, the hair on my arm got singed. It didn't even touch me. The flame didn't touch me. The heat did. It singed the hair on my arm. Sometimes you have your eyebrows singed. When the Hebrew children came out of a fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter than normal, so hot that those who cast them in was consumed, there was absolutely no evidence they had ever been in a fiery furnace. There was absolutely no evidence that Daniel had been in the den of lions. Now, a, lion, a lion's den in that day was a large pit. It was big enough. They had a movable wall kind of down the middle. And the lion stayed on one side, and then they put food and water for the lions on the other side. At a certain time, they would raise the wall, and the lions would go to the other side and eat. On this occasion here, the lions are over here. Here's the wall, and Daniel's the food. They raise the wall. The lions go over, but the lions meet an angel. And the angel of God shut the mouth of the lions in that den and no harm or hurt came to Daniel. Plus, I'm sure Daniel appreciated the companionship of the angel. Don't you think he did? I imagine he did. I imagine he enjoyed having the companionship of, of an angel that God sent down from heaven. No hurt. Now, the king went to bed sad, but the king the next morning is glad. He went from sadness to gladness. <laughs> then was the king exceeding glad for him and commanded they should take Daniel up out of the den so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in God, in his God. Notice this. Very important little expression at the end. Because he believed in his God, who is the true God, the living God, the God of providence, the God of omnipotent power. He believed in his God, and no harm and no hurt came to Daniel. This speaks of the faith of Daniel. Go over to Hebrews chapter 11. And you'll find men like Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And you'll read something that each one of them did that God thought was important for us to know. So they put it over here in Hebrews chapter 11. Then he says, if I had more time, I'd tell you about people like Samson. Nothing's mentioned about what he did, just mentions his name. 
Then he starts talking about things that happen where there are no names. He says, there were those who quenched, who quenched fires. Wonder who that was. Hebrew children. There were those who stopped the mouth of lions. Wonder who that was. Daniel. And since uh, that, their names aren't mentioned, you know, you go back and you read, read the events. Now God gives you events with no name. And then he talks about women who received their dead, raised back to life again. Says they would not compromise because they were looking for a better resurrection. The Bible lists at least seven, at least seven people have been resurrected from the dead, but I can assure you they all died and went, they all lived and died again, but there's a better resurrection coming, and when that takes place, you're not going to die again. That's the difference between the resurrection at the end of time and the resurrection we read in the Word of God. That's the better resurrection. But one point I want to make about this as we begin to wrap it up here is that God is in sovereign control of all things. God delivered Daniel from that den of lions for those two reasons I gave you in the beginning. But I read in the book of Acts chapter 12 where there's James, the brother of John, and the apostle Peter in prison, and Herod slays James. Peter is delivered. Why didn't God deliver James? Because he's God. And he, he's a sovereign God. Sometimes God doesn't prolong the lives of his servants when they face great persecutions. But he takes them all home to glory so they never have to experience another one. So you find that case in Acts 12. You find it over here in Hebrews chapter 11. And you find where this king now is exceedingly glad. Daniel is alive, so what does the king do? He brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them to the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, and the lions had to master them and break all their bones in pieces wherever they came at the bottom of the den. Now in the book of Proverbs 26, 27, Psalmist says, Whosoever diggeth a pit shall fall therein, and whosoever shall roll a stone shall come back upon him. That's just simply teaching what a person sows, he reaps. And you can see this happening all the way down through the time. You take Haman over there in the book of Esther. He had a gallows built for Mordecai. Who hung on it? Haman did. You find where Pharaoh, in the time that Israel was in captivity down there in the land of Egypt, and he had all the uh, Jewish babies uh, were to be killed. But the tenth and final plague God sent was the death of the firstborn, and the, the firstborn of all the Egyptians was slain. Not a single Israelite was slain. He gave a command that all the male uh, babies that was born to be drowned in the sea. What happens? We find Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his great army all going to be drowned in the sea when they try to pursue after the Israelites, after God brought them across the Red Sea dry shod without the loss of one. Well, this can go on and on. We find here that those who came there made all these accusations, these false accusations against Daniel. They all wind up in the den of lions. And they're all slain by the lions in that den. Now I want to close out this morning by noticing here. Then the king Darius wrote to all people, nations, and languages that dwelled in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. 
for he's a living, he's a living God and steadfast forever and his kingdom for which he shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and earth who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered the reign of Darius. I'm telling you, these words that King Darius wrote are just as strong, just as powerful, and just as true as if Moses had written them or David had written them or anybody else. They come from the pen of a King Darius, a heathen king, and these Israelites who did not praise God, and that's why they're in captivity, the God they would not praise is now being praised by these Gentile people. God's going to get his praise one way or the other. He's a jealous God. He'll not give his glory to another, you see. And so, in the book of 1 Peter, I was thinking about this this morning. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 7, he says that the trial of your faith, being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. Does that sound like the Hebrew children? Was their faith tried? Was it tried with a, with a, a trial of fire? A fiery trial? It sure was. It says it shall come forth as gold with all the dross burned off. Then we read in 1 Peter 5, 8, he said, Be vigilant, be sober, for your adversary is a roaring lion, uh, seeking about, walking about, seeking whom shall devour. You think about Daniel there? Was there some roaring lions? God took care of that situation, didn't he? And the verse before that, and always remember this, Casting all your care upon the Lord, for he careth for you. He cared for the Hebrew children. He cared for Daniel. If God could deliver the Hebrew children from the fiery furnace, and he did. If God could deliver Daniel from the den of lions, and he did. Then God could deliver Israel and bring them back to their homeland after 70 years of captivity in the land of Babylon. 